So this morning I want to talk about this uh, incredible figure and inspiration for our practice called the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva is this uh, figure which especially is developed in Mahayana Buddhism, but also is present in the original teachings and in the uh, Theravada tradition. It's a figure that I think is very powerful and appropriate for our times. The Bodhisattva is the one who connects individual practice and the yearning to be free with helping others. And with, in fact, dedicating one's life to the quest for freedom for oneself and others, but particularly for others. So I want to talk about the Bodhisattva, and probably also next time, talk about the, um, some of the historical background for the Bodhisattva, but mostly talk about uh, the qualities of a bodhisattva and how to become a bodhisattva oneself or how to become a bodhisattva more because many of us are already bodhisattvas. Um, and the handout hopefully can be helpful. Uh, the term bodhisattva itself has two roots. Bodhi is the same root uh, of the word uh, Buddha and means awakened mind or uh, enlightenment really means awakening, enlightenment, bodhi, and then sattva simply means being. And so we have the composite, therefore, a being dedicated to awakening, and particularly uh, for others, that was, as it was interpreted in the Mahayana. I want to connect a little bit with the talk last week. Uh, some of you were here. I talked last week about the Dharma and democracy on the 4th of July <laughs> and about the connections. And I wanted to read sort of an evocation of the Bodhisattva spirit by one of the great American Bodhisattvas named Walt Whitman, great poet and healer and uh, occasionally a rabble rouser. And this is what he said. This is the Bodhisattva intention, a sort of... Um, 19th century American style. This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Re-examine all, all that you have been told in school or church or in any book. Dismiss what insults your very soul. And your flesh shall become a great poem and have the richest fluency not only in its words but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. This is what you should do. In the history uh, of Buddhism, the Bodhisattva really first appears in the teachings of the Buddha. And the Buddha describes himself as having been a Bodhisattva. 
in the Pali language, it's bodhisattva. And he says that on my way to becoming a Buddha, I was only an unenlightened bodhisattva. But the bodhisattva is one who is dedicated to becoming a Buddha. And so we have, uh, in some of the other texts connected with uh, the early tradition, there is a text in which it's said that uh, a very long time ago, in fact, the time frame is that of four incalculables plus 100,000 eons, <laughs> which sounds like one version of, as they, we say in stories, a long time ago. <laughs> there was a person named Sumedha who uh, heard about a fully awakened being, which is actually the, the Buddha in the world preceding Shakyamuni Buddha, who was named Deepankara. And it's said that Sumedha, hearing about this awake being, said, I dedicate myself to becoming a Buddha. And had this great um, intention. And in fact, Deepankara recognized in this being something very special. And it said that after those four incalculables and 100,000 eons, that being over countless lifetimes became uh, the Buddha. In the past lifetimes, there are texts which talk about the journey lifetime to lifetime in that, in that cosmology of this being and describe the being as a bodhisattva who was slowly developing the qualities of a fully awakened being. And so there are stories in which the Buddha to be is described as the bodhisattva in that lifetime was a tiger, you know. In that lifetime uh, took another form, in that lifetime was a human being. And a lot of the stories are about how certain qualities were developed. In the tradition that is the Theravada tradition, that's the basis for Spirit Rock, the Bodhisattva doesn't play a huge role. The main figure in the Theravada tradition is the Arhat, the awakened being. And and yet I think there's a kind of resurgence of interest in the bodhisattva, particularly the flavor that we get from the uh, Mahayana tradition, which, is, which was the emphasis particularly on helping others, of continuing this pursuit of, towards becoming a Buddha, but developing the abilities that help one to serve others. And some of you know in the, um, in the Mahayana tradition, there are all sorts of bodhisattvas. And some of them are kind of archetypal figures, like actually a lot of the figures we have around here. This is Avalokiteshvara, who is a bodhisattva. Avalokiteshvara is the bodhisattva of compassion in the um, sort of Indian-Tibetan form. When Avalokiteshvara goes to China, he becomes a she and becomes Kuan Yin. So Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin is a transgender bodhisattva. And interesting, interesting, because the compassion could be seen in both. Avalokiteshvara that we have here, if you look carefully, has a thousand arms, and on each hand of each arm there is an eye. And what this symbolizes is the eye symbolizes the receptive quality of compassion, 
what we might call the empathic quality of compassion. And the hand or arm signifies the active dimension of compassion. So that compassionate mm, work in the world requires both the, the ability to be receptive, to feel what others are feeling, to be empathic, but also to act. And so the bodhisattva actually has to have both. So we have the bodhisattva of compassion. We have, some of you know, the figure of Manjushri has the sword that cuts through delusion. So, fig, so any, and this, these are archetypal figures, but also you might have friends who are really good at cutting through delusion, and they are manifestations of Manjushri. There's the, there's the um, Bodhisattva Samantabhadra, who is the who is particularly specializes in really clear, effective action in the world. There's the Bodhisattva uh, Sita Garba, who becomes Jizo in Japan, who is the Bodhisattva that protects the vulnerable, particularly travelers, but also children, and is one of the most popular Bodhisattvas. That can make the, all of what I've said so far, can make the sense of Bodhisattva be a little distant. Oh, it's these great archetypal figures, you know, and so forth. Or it's, it's um, the Dalai Lama is said to be a manifestation of Avalokitesvara, known in Tibet as Chenrizi. But, but I think Bodhisattva is having this uh, resonance in our time because it also is about something really ordinary. And we can talk about, I think, everyday bodhisattvas. And that can be hopefully something which inspires us. And so an everyday bodhisattva is someone who might have some of those qualities, who might be someone who gets better at cutting through delusion, or is a person who really focuses on compassionate action, or on action in the world, or on helping those who are in need of help, or more generally is one who is dedicated to helping others as well as to awakening oneself. And so it might be uh, someone you know in your everyday life. It might be your, um, your grandmother, or it might be your neighborhood um, grocer who just happens to have this amazing uh, ability to connect with people, or it might be one of your teachers, or it might be uh, a more well-known figure like uh, Gandhi or um, or King, or Dorothy Day, or Aung San Suu Kyi, or the Dalai Lama, you know, people who are well-known, who, who bring together this connection of really of inner work with helping others. And it's just this, it's this I think, this really powerful um, uh, archetype that really, uh, I think one of the reasons it's so powerful that it really connects with both what the world needs right now and also a lot of Western traditions. I was thinking of the um, resonance with both the Jewish and the Christian and, in a way, the, the Islamic traditions, that the Jewish prophets are like bodhisattvas. They are people who uh, bring together in their being this deep um, spiritual uh, energy with the desire to help others. And, you know... Um, think of some of the statements that you find in the prophetic text. Someone like Isaiah who says, you know, things are getting bad because we are getting selfish and neglecting the poor and neglecting those in need. And we have to do that if we really have any um, spiritual meaning to our lives. 
or the figure of Jesus. I think Jesus is a, a bodhisattva par excellence. You know, that think of what Jesus brings together, this, again, deep, uh, deep interiority, this deep inner quality with, uh, with acting in the world. There's, there's a book that's really inspired me by Andrew Harvey, and he has a passage in which he says that Jesus combines the most sublime mystical depth with a revolutionary commitment to change things. And that's, that's deep in our culture. So I think these are some of the resonances that when the bodhisattva becomes announced, you know, and the, the bodhisattva is going into all sorts of popular culture. There was a, you know, there was, there have been a lot of songs called bodhisattva. And there, I remember there was a song in the late 1980s called Walk Like a Bodhisattva. Do you remember that? And, <laughs> and, and, um, I caught up with that, and I remember uh, Julie Wester and I taught a class called Walk Like a Bodhisattva, uh, you know, I think in the, like the early 90s or so. And uh, I know uh, Jack Kerouac uh, talked about bodhisattvas in some of his books, you know, in the book called The Dharma Bums. Some of you may, may have seen that. He says, you know, we're all bodhisattvas, you know, wandering around with backpacks, <laughs> you know. And, uh, I think also indigenous figures also have that um, combination of inner and outer attention. I was thinking of the shaman who, again, goes on these vast journeys into different dimensions, but always does so for the benefit of the community. And the traditional notion of the shaman, the shaman is deeply connected with community needs. And that's really that, that sense, of the, sense of the bodhisattva. Now, what makes this interesting for us is that you can train to be a bodhisattva. You can sign up. <laughs> you can go to bodhisattva boot camp. You can, um, and I'm, I'm serious, you can actually um, look at what needs to be developed and develop as a bodhisattva. And I think for this time and next time, I'm going to particularly focus on the qualities of the bodhisattva. And in the Mahayana tradition, the qualities are mentioned in this list which I gave on the handout. Traditionally in Mahayana tradition, there are ten qualities which are developed. And, and this is the, the order of them. There's generosity. There's uh, developing in one's uh, ethical conduct, in one's uh, capacity to be ethical. There's patience. There's effort or energy. <laughs> Bodhisattvas don't just typically sit around and slouch in their comforters or comfort chairs or something, but they actually have energy, um, often acting. There's the factor of meditation. There's wisdom. There's skillful means, the ability to know how to work in a given situation skillfully with a person or maybe a conflict. There's the training in vow or commitment, the ability to be, uh, really be steadfast in one's orientation. There, the ninth is what, what is translated as powers, uh, which traditionally had referred to psychic powers, the ability to have these deep intuitions, but I think also more generally has to do with strengthening one's gifts. And finally, there's the quali a quality, a kind of uh, intuitive knowledge uh, intuitive spiritual understanding, which is, uh, which is sort of the final 
insights of bodhisattvas. So uh, this morning, I wanted to just talk about three of them, maybe. Maybe just, yeah, just two or three of them, and to get us going. But the key here is that we can really uh, train, that we, can, we could take, if, if this resonates, if I say, yes, I want to really see myself more as connecting my own inner work with helping others, and how do I work further? How do I train? How do I uh, do this work? And having a list like this and then focusing on the qualities and saying, what can I do to develop these qualities can be a way of making this very real. And so if, we're, uh, if we think of ourselves as bodhisattvas in training, for people, you know, and if, that, if other language is better for you, then use that. But people who are connecting inner work with helping others, then this is a list of some of the areas that we might really focus on and, and look to see how can I develop in each of these. And I think I want to talk um, just about three this morning um, and, and do that even briefly. And one of them is, I'm, I'm going to start actually with the eighth, which is the, we call vow or commitment, and connect that with intention. And then I want to talk some about patience. And then I want to talk some about meditation. And just talk about those three. And you can see how they all interweave with each other. So intention, or vow, has really has two aspects. And it's an old, for those of you who uh, do practice, it's a really fundamental one and an old favorite. It, it is uh, central to the teachings of the Buddha. And when, when we work with the sense of vow as a bodhisattva, it sort of takes another level. There, on the one hand, there's an emphasis on the intention that's present in any moment and our working with intention as a practice. And on the other hand, there is an aspect of intention which has to do with our aspiration. And that has more to do with vow. But both are really crucial. So if we're in training for uh, being a bodhisattva, we work with intention a lot. We really consciously set intentions. We check into our intentions. We do it as a practice. We might repeat our intentions in the morning. And this connects with the really fundamental teaching of the Buddha that uh, intention is really central to all of our practice. In fact, the Buddha explicated, as you may know, explicated karma primarily in terms of intention. Sometimes we think of karma as this mystical calculus, you know, what's happening to me now, you know, my, I don't know, I remember once when I was thinking a lot about karma and talking with a friend who was a house guest, um, the, um, the toilet got clogged after she used it. And she said, oh, that's my karma. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think that that's kind of a popular way of talking, you know, of using the sense of karma as, you know, as if I, you know, if I, cut, if I cut off a driver driving to Spirit Rock, to meditate for two hours, <laughs> then once I leave here, someone else will cut me off when I get onto Sir Francis Drake. I mean, that's, and that's not really the understanding that the Buddha gave. Uh, there, is, there is a sense that he had that things are happening for lawful purposes, but he said that the real focus for karma is to focus on intention. Is to foc- and, and what that means is that uh, 
if we look to our intention, it's our current present moment intention which is essentially uh, setting up the future. That if I'm here and if I'm, or if I'm, let's say, with a situation and I uh, generate more generosity, that is supporting generosity for the future. If in a given moment I'm mindful when I'm having a difficult time, that supports mindfulness. On the other hand, if I sort of give in to my uh, confusion and speak uh, angrily and unconsciously with a friend, I'm strengthening that habit. And so the Buddha was saying that this is really the deeper meaning of karma, is that with every one of our actions moment to moment, we're setting up the conditions for the future. We're really, and that, that is the sort of the deeper or more immediate and also more immediate sense of karma. And so we can look at intention continually. We can look at what's my intention when I meditate. We can work with intentions. We can, as we were talking about with Elizabeth, we can set the intention to practice the evening before the morning. We can go into a meeting, as, as I often do, and say, what's my intention for being at this meeting? We can do that before work. We can connect with our intention. We can, we can say, and I think we do that sometimes when we say grace at before a meal, that we, in a way, we connect with intention. And we can continually do that, and it's, it can be a fundamental practice. And there's a, there's a second dimension of intention or vow, which is captured more in the sense of aspiration. And this is not so much the moment-to-moment intention, but it's our deeper long-term intention. And this, is, uh, this might be uh, to frame our lives and saying, what's my life about? You know? and, and the aspiration may be to awaken, or it may be to help others. It may be to find greater freedom. And tuning into that aspiration is really fundamental for bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas spend a lot of time remembering that they're bodhisattvas. Because we forget, don't we? You know, and so that quality of continually coming back to the deeper motivation is really, really crucial for this practice. And it's hard because life gets busy, we forget things. That's why retreats are so wonderful. Or sometimes anything which kind of opens us up to the deeper intention is really crucial. And it's important to have some kind of connection to that. And so in the Mahayana traditions, there can be very explicit uh, practices in which we remember our deep intention. And we can have what we call a bodhisattva vow, in which we remember our intention to practice for the benefit of others. And I have one of them from the Zen tradition on, on the handout. And this is done every day in the Zendo. The practitioners would repeat, living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. And this is repeated so that the aspiration becomes stronger. And again, it's this continual reminder. And somehow we need that. You know, I often begin my meditation with something like that um, intention, saying, May my practice help myself awaken for the benefit of others. And I try to do that every day when I practice. And it kind of tunes me in and it, it 
it helps at certain moments. It doesn't mean that I remember that all the time, or even necessarily most of the time. But it really, we're really strengthening that connection with our deeper aspiration, and in some cases, uh, soliciting it. I remember once, uh, a few years ago, I, did, I made a kind of a, uh, something like a vow with a friend that had a lot of power to me. We just agreed to take this vow that we both shared and the vow was, I vow that all my actions will come out, of pre- come out of presence and kindness. And I wrote that down, and I put it on my wall near my telephone. <laughs> uh, and it had a lot of power for me that I continually remember, particularly when I was maybe getting into a territory where the opposite might be tending to manifest. And so we can remember to do that. In Tibetan tradition, they take bodhisattva vows where they formally announce before the community that my aspiration is to work for awakening and the benefit of all beings. And they do that in an explicit ritual. In probably the, if you were looking for one manual for the bodhisattva life, there's a text from the 8th century called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shantideva. You want a manual? You have to do a little translation because it's 8th century. But it's, and then I thought I'd also mention there's a wonderful book, which I hope is in the bookstore, called Faces of Compassion, Classic Bodhisattva Archetypes and Their Modern Expression. You know, it's a beautiful book by Tigen Dan Layton, who used to live in Berkeley. He's a Zen teacher. What? T-A-I-G-E-N. Dan. And Leighton, L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. So these would be the two books to work with if you want to work further. And maybe even first starting with the um, commentary because he, he talks both about the history but also he interprets um, all sorts of contemporary people as bodhisattvas. You know, Albert Einstein, Joanna Macy, Martin Luther King, and so forth, Aung San Suu Kyi. He sees, he sees those qualities. And in the uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva Ways of Life, there's a whole, many of his initial chapters are about awakening this quality of aspiration. (coughs) Let me see if I can find the passages here. These These are from the text. May I be a protector. This is a form of the vow. May I be a protector for those without one, a guide for all travelers on the way. May I be a bridge, a boat, and a ship for all who wish to cross. May I be an island for those who seek one and a lamp for those desiring light. May I be a bed for all those who wish to rest and a slave for all those who want to slave. In one sort of more contemporary translation, it's it's said that may I be the living ground of love for all beings. Mm. You see, another place in the text he says for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure may I stay to dispel the suffering of the world so how to work with that we can work with intentions we can work with that sense of inviting the inviting our deeper motivation to be present it's really staying in touch with our deeper motivation which is so easily lost in daily life, isn't it? Things just get, can get busy. You know, we forget about it. That's why coming together here can be so crucial because we remember our motivation. 
doing retreats, again, very, very crucial. Some kind of just very brief repetition. It doesn't have to be high, so highfalutin, like, may I dispel the misery of the world. You know, it's like my sister sometimes says, just be a better person. <laughs> you know, or something more, more modest. You know, but, it, but it's really, how do we tune into that? And doing it on a daily basis can be really helpful. And I think what I'll invite uh, us to do in this uh, next week for those who choose it, is to actually work in a conscious way with intention and vow in your own way and see what you find, but it's make, to make a commitment to do it every day and see what, see what you work with, see what comes of that. The second quality I want to talk about, and this actually may be, I may just talk about this and then work with the others next time. The second I want to talk about is uh, patience. And patience is mentioned early on in the, in the list of the bodhisattva virtues. And it's especially talked about as the ability to keep on going even when things are a little difficult. That, that, that's where patience particularly manifests. It's this kind of steadfastness. And it's connected with the other qualities because obviously intention and vow can help with patience. Right? So they're, they're, they're interconnected. But it's the ability to be, really, to be patient with, patient with ourselves, patient with difficulties, to have some quality of balance when there are difficult emotions, to be patient with other people, to be patient with the slow pace of human evolution. It takes enormous patience. Have you noticed? It takes a while. Just a good relationship takes a little while. It takes a long time. So... Patience is so clearly important, but patience, again, doesn't mean passivity. Patience doesn't mean just standing back and doing nothing. It's more the quality of lack of reactivity towards what's happening. Ability to be with difficulties. We've, uh, I think in the fall, we, last fall, we talked about the eight worldly winds. If you want a test of whether how well-developed your patience is, ask yourself how you do with the eight worldly winds. Here are the winds. These are the winds that knock us off center or knock knock us off balance. And the eight winds are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and perhaps most intensely, praise and blame. And so... Part of patience would be the growing ability to be non-reactive when those arrive, to be non-reactive increasingly with both, both pleasure and pain. Not just pain, but to be non-reactive with pleasure means we don't grab hold of it in some compulsive way. To be non-reactive with gain and loss or fame and disrepute or praise and blame. And so we can take instances of those um, factors arising as opportunities for patience. One of the most uh, powerful uh, ways to develop patience is with people we find difficult, so-called difficult people. And I have to say, people we find difficult rather than objectively difficult people. I think we like to think that there are objectively difficult people. This is not the case. Although there are some people who large percentages of people find difficult. 
but there is a way in which uh, difficult people can call forth, they call forth a lot of things, and I'm doing a whole day long on this in September, but they, they call forth, among other things, they call forth patience. And Shantideva, in his text, he particularly focuses on how we work with difficult people. He actually calls them enemies in his text, or that's how it's translated. And I wanted to just read one passage which can give a sense of a different perspective on working with difficult people in the context of patience. Let's see. And I'll use his original language of enemy. Therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my part to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for my enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Convinced? <laughs> and be- I'll read a little further. Because I am able to practice patience with my enemy, my enemy is worthy of being given the very first fruits of my patience. For in this way, my enemy is the cause of my patience. Do you get the, the flip? Mm-hmm. And so when we work with, when we work as a bodhisattva in training, we remember the opportunity to develop patience. We look at a difficult situation. Again, it's not that we become passive or just, oh, my enemy, do whatever you wish with me you know, abuse me and so forth. It's not that. It's, we can be very patient, but also very firm and stand up and do what needs to be done. And I was thinking of a few, um, I want to maybe just close with a few stories about patience. And one of them is um, from, my, from my father, who I think was a very patient man, and many of you knew him because he used to come to this class, and he died about a year and a half ago. And there's, um, outside in the courtyard, there's a uh, plaque on one of the benches for him. And it has, you know, it says, in loving memory, and has his name, and um, years. And also has a phrase that uh, says, the continual, um, the continual pursuit, I believe, of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. And that was, those were his own words. And when I, um, they uh, are on uh, a gift that he gave to me. When I got a, uh, a doctorate, he gave me this plaque which had sat on his desk at work. And there was a plaque that said Dr. Rothberg, because <laughs> he was a scientist. And he, he gave me this plaque and he said, I pass this on to you because it has always symbolized to me my continual pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. And what I do, I love going down to, to sit on that bench, I, particularly when I do retreats up in the upper area. And I often, I, it's pretty much a regular practice. I come down after tea when no one is there and I sit on the bench. And I, uh, often what I do is I look at that and sometimes I'm tired or I'm something... You know, I'm feeling like I don't have the great energy. And I look at that, the continual pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. Oh, yes! <laughs> and I, I get energized. And there's some quality of patience which, which, gets, which arises. And it's kind of, it's like, uh, oh, well, that, that gives me um, energy and patience to deal with whatever's happening. And it's really, it's really quite wonderful to do that. And um, I thought I'd maybe close with... Uh, 
Yeah, I'll do two other stories. One, one is a story that, that I love. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a story from Larry Rosenberg, who's a Zen teacher. And it's a story of Larry was, um, um, before he became a Vipassana teacher, was, a, uh, was studying with the Zen teacher Sunsanim. And they had scheduled a four-day retreat that Larry was supposed to teach. It was right after Christmas. And he was staying in the Zen Center in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. And everyone else went home to be with their families uh, at that time. But Larry was uh, and is Jewish, so he didn't go home. And he just stayed around and waited for the retreat. But then he noticed that uh, no one had signed up for the retreat. And so he went to his teacher and said, uh, I guess we canceled the retreat, huh? And his teacher said, no. I want you to teach it. He says, there's no one there. Teach it anyway. And he taught a four-day retreat with no one in the hall. He did all the rituals. He, he even, his teacher even told him to give the talks, gave the Dharma talks, and no one was there. And Larry said, um, the first day, he felt a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> Why would he feel? Uh, uh, he felt a little weird and strange, and he, he felt kind of foolish. But after a day, something shifted, and he did another three days. And he said he learned some very profound things doing that. Uh, patience was one of them. You know, just that being present and just being with things, no matter what the circumstances are. But being kind of—it's kind of like a connection of the patience with the the aspiration, isn't it? It's like remembering what's important for him, no matter what's happening. Even if things don't seem to be going right. You know, it's really staying grounded in that deep aspiration. And there's, uh, he also said it really uh, freed him from thinking about, uh, you know, his teaching in terms of certain kinds of conventional results. You know, people would ask, how many people came to your retreat? <laughs> you know, so another retreat, he might, you know, you know, because conventionally, you know, even you know, people would say, "How many came to your retreat?" Oh, it was a full retreat. You know, we filled it. Eighty-five people. There were commuters. Oh, sounds like a great retreat. How many came to your retreat? You know, there were well, there were eleven. Oh, not so many people, huh? You know, and and you know, so Larry could uh, <laughs> could answer. So, but he said it freed him from thinking about that. And for since then, it's just whenever anyone goes there, you know, to kind of to to evaluate something by kind of the external realities, he says he just something was liberated from him. Something is freer from from that experience. So it's it's uh, maybe the combination of the patience and the the really the the resting in one's vow as. Um, very basic. These are like the, we could call these. These are the first two trainings for the Bodhisattva path, and uh, they're 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 good trainings to remember. And we'll cover some of the others, I think, next week. But that sense, and if you feel energized and motivated to work with this or to look at, I mean, we can look generally at how how do I connect my inner work with my helping others and my action in the world. That's the more general sense of being a bodhisattva. But we can also train quite specifically 
with working with intention, working with, with a vow, and see what works for you if you feel called to, to do this. Because I think if I gave you all ten, that would be too much for next week. <laughs> but two is manageable. Okay? And so I invite everyone to work with intention. Again, you can work with it by just uh, working with an intention for a given activity when you meditate before you do something. You can also tune in to the deeper aspiration uh, in, you, in your life or for the day. And then with patience, just to remember patience maybe, just to remember it at the beginning of the day. Patience. You know, and then particularly look where those eight worldly winds come. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, and particularly with difficult people, so-called. Remember patience. I think I'll end here and um, invite us to do those practices, and we'll compare notes next time. So, thank you. And I think I was hoping to have some dyads, uh, some small groups, and then large group. But I think because of the time, we'll just do a large group, and I'll, I'll really try to make it work next time to have some. Um, chance for dyads. So I invite any any questions or reflections of any kind, please. Um, this, um, this view of patience, how is it different from equanimity? It's linked with equanimity, isn't it? Equanimity is the ability to be balanced, to be balanced with whatever comes up and to kind of have a spaciousness um, I think in the teaching, as I understand it, the patience is particularly focused on, I think it's partly having a long view of things, having a sense of how things develop over time. And I think it's actually, it actually is part of what equanimity is about, isn't it? I mean, if we're equanimous, we're probably going to be patient. But in the, in the teaching, as I mentioned in the Shanti Deva, it's particularly connected with the ability to be with um, enemies, with difficult people, with people who are, in some sense, uh, causing us pain. And the, um, I think equanimity is probably a little more connected with the wisdom factor. And this is more almost a kind of um, um, forbearance, an ability just to stay with What's present, but I think they're I think they're quite connected. So your question's a good one. Please. I like what you said in the beginning already that we differentiate, but I feel that um, we can keep on going. Yeah. No matter what happens. Yeah. No matter what darkness or as a as a quality of patience, yeah. the ability to to keep going to really. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it has um, has these beautiful qualities of really partly. I think remembering perspective, partly. Uh, I mean, what what is what is patience about in your experience? When when you're patient with um, when we're patient, let's say with children or with coworkers, what is that? What is that? How does that work? Mm-hmm. 
or it might have it might have to do with really valuing the others, the others' experience. It's a little different than equanimity, I guess, in that sense, and being able to um, maybe to to do what's necessary in a situation. That's um, that's coming to mind, even though it's um, it's trying. I think probably also it has to do with just noticing where we get impatient and what impatience is about. Like noticing, um, uh, you know, for me, I think I get impatient when, uh, when I have some agenda about how things should happen and particularly the speed at which they should happen. You know, that I have some idea, some plan. This, this meeting should occur you know, we should get through all our agenda items and we're getting stuck with the first item. So I can get impatient. So it, it may have to do with having a, a fixed view of what's supposed to happen. So probably a lot of this is really to look at what is impatience about? What is there when we're impatient? What do you, what do you find with impatience? Did you have another question? Okay. Uh, let me let me just come back to you in a moment. But what what's what's impatience about? Please. So I think at a fundamental level, it's uh, that you have a like you said a fixed view of what mm-hmm. should be happening. That this should be happening in yeah. a particular way, and it's not. Yeah. That, therefore, that's what that impatience. Is. Kind of an inner tension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you want to add something to that? Yeah. Let it pass. And there's some, there's some kind of wisdom about time and about how things develop that's in patience um, or that's found with patience. That there's some, and that there's kind of a wisdom factor that, oh, maybe, maybe this needs to happen. You know, maybe I had an earlier view that it could happen this way, but oh, it's, it's, I think it's the willingness to, ex- to, to shift from a fixed view quickly, you know, maybe, and to take, to have an expanded view. Yeah. Please. Maybe one more and then we'll move move to your question. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. I was going to just say broadening your perspective. Yeah. Allowing more in rather than a sort of a tunnel vision. Yeah. Stepping back and broadening. So big view and so a lot of it we can actually see when we actually look what is impatience. The narrow view, the body gets antsy. Um have a fixed view, we think we're right, we think we know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's some, and some, some part of reality is coming up against that, and the result is kind of impatience, which can lead to all sorts of other things. Yeah. And so it's that broadening the view can have some wisdom, some openness to actually shifting our view. Uh, that would be part of patience, wouldn't it? And particularly having a sense of uh, wisdom in relation to how things unfold in time, which is pretty big. Time is big and the understanding is big. So please, yeah. I'd like to introduce myself. 
Okay. Great. Can you say their names one more time? <coughs> yeah. Hi. Welcome. You were very patient to wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, welcome. And your mom's been a strong presence. Yeah. So that, please, Ruth. One of the tools that I was taught by my teacher in the 70s to deal with the situations needing patience yeah. was to pause before taking the next action yeah. and to even practice it for just 10 seconds, just yeah. standing and taking a breath and then moving on. Yeah. And it's a, such a simple practice, yeah. but it has really helped in many situations. Yeah, did everyone hear? Pause before what? Just to pause, the, the, whole, the whole notion of pausing, it's really, in a way, is inviting that wider perspective. I know that sometimes, I, I wasn't even aware of this until someone pointed out, but sometimes I find that it's quite skillful just to, in the middle of a conversation, things are happening quickly, it's just to pause and let that space be there and to invite some greater wisdom to come. What other practices have you used to, to develop patience? Um, for me, it's when I catch myself kind of having a, some kind of reactivity, it's, it's a chance to enter into humbleness. It's like, oh, there's the unfoldment, the unknown unfoldment is happening. And I just need to observe the unknown unfoldment. Yeah, just some, some stepping back and, and seeing if there's some, again, some wider view that can substitute for the earlier view. Yeah, yeah. a reminder that this is all a mystery and, you know, why, why do I think it has to happen in a certain time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other, other practices that people use to, to help with patients? Yeah. For me, sometimes not to judge myself when I do, I am impatient with mm. the situation. Because if I try too hard to be patient, it doesn't work many times. So mm. I just allow, allow just that to happen once in a while, that, I'm impa- that I am impatient. And then, I don't know how to explain that. It's just a relationship that helps me to be more patient in the bigger picture. Yeah. So <laughs> So patience with your lack of patience. <laughs> Please, Elizabeth. I've noticed like waiting in line and the guy in front of you has poop on. And <laughs> That's right. Or you know, whatever. And, um, and I'm in a hurry and I all of a sudden it'll just hit me. Okay, am I going to get reactive and get all upset about this or am I going to stay calm and be patient? Yeah. So that I could, the awareness yeah, so it's really inviting these uh, very ordinary situations as opportunities for patience. Yeah. You know, it's like um, uh, a lot of this is the reframing or remembering the intention, right? It's like how can we take ordinary circumstances which often lead us to get confused or get lost, you know, like I come over from the East Bay to Spirit Rock every Wednesday and I have my choice of like eight lines at the toll booth to go through. 
kind of like the choices we make at the what the, the grocery store, right? Okay, which is gonna which is gonna get through, and then we, and so how would it be if when we notice our minds going in that way, we say, ah, an opportunity for patience, and so there's something about that um, taking a very ordinary situations and inviting or sort of reframing. It's almost like if we can have some kind of light bulb that comes on when we're impatient, and so my hope is that for this next week, we can when we focus on intention and vow and on patience, that it kind of gives us a kind of a light bulb to, uh, to remember uh, and to really look carefully. Um, please, maybe we're at, we're at time, so I have I see four hands. So, uh, and did you want to say something? I have a favor to ask, and I wish I could say, but I'm also in the middle of a, a plumbing emergency in oh. my house, so I came over in between. Um, but this is a favor to ask of this class. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Hanging over the fence behind this wall here is a big white parachute, a um, hundred feet across, that mm. we are thinking of fixing so we can put it over the meadow for events. And my favor is if any of you have, if a half a dozen of you have time at the end of the class to pick it up and carry it out to the meadow there and just spread it out, then I can come back after my plumber leaves <laughs> and figure out how we're going to hang it up on suspenders. So that would be appreciate it if you're able to do it. And then it's a chance to... And of course, you have to do it patiently. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it's a chance. I mean, you don't have to wait till you get home or you're on the road <laughs> for patience and intention. So, and it's... <laughs> so thank you, Jack. Thank you. Yeah. So are there, are there some people who have some time who could help uh, bring that? Oh, it's great. So got a parachute group <laughs> and let's see take can I I'll invite your you had comment and then did you have one Maggie no maybe it'll just take one or two if we can have really two brief ones because we're okay that's advanced advanced Bodhisattva training <laughs> That's right. Hard to, uh, or to deli- yeah. If you if you feel yourself up for it, you can deliberately go to situations which you know are harder for you, right? But probably, but the main thing is somehow to take the very everyday situations, and this is where intention. This is where the two themes that we've looked at today really come together. Because if we set our intention in the morning, and maybe even make a vow, and just you just need to do it for five minutes, take five minutes, or maybe do it before the meeting we'll be more likely when we're near that uh, toll booth to remember. That's the whole key here. It's, the, the whole key to this whole practice is actually, uh, it's actually to remember. Being mindful, setting intentions, rem- making vows, being patient, you know or, or remembering to be, or actually being patient is um, not that hard. It's way less hard than remembering to be mindful or remembering to set our intentions. So somehow the key here is what helps us remember, what helps us in the moment to be at the toll line and say, oh, patience. Let's do patience practice now. No way. (laughs) Or, well, 
your choice is you can either get irritable or you can do patience practice. What are you going to do? I'll be irritable. <laughs> okay, another choice? Okay, you convinced me. <laughs> so, uh, so, that's, so that's the invitation for the next week. And maybe last, uh, last question well, or comment. I, it, it tags on to what yeah. you said really easily because we all laugh. And I, I was just going to say that for me, I can find more patience if I can find some humor in yeah. the situation. Yeah. That helps, you know, just to lighten up. Just to lighten up. Yeah. That's why I always carry around my clown nose, you know. Very, very nose. I always carry around my clown nose because it helps to, and part of the clown training that I went through was that we were invited to look at ordinary situations as material for clown skits. <laughs> Makes a huge difference. You know, look at that long line, or even look at this really melodramatic situation with your friend, and imagine it as a clown skit. <laughs> okay. Again, maybe I don't know if that's advanced practice, but uh, anyway. So let's let's just sit for a moment to to close. Let me just ask how many how many people actually would like to work with intention and vow on the one hand and patience on the other for the next week. Okay, we got a quorum. Okay. So let's, let's just sit and take a minute or two just to let be present what may have been helpful from the morning and also any of your intentions for how you're actually going to do this. How are you going to support this practice for the next week? So we remember that we do this practice of mindfulness and compassion and developing clarity of intention and aspiration, developing patience. We do this for ourselves, but also for for others. And may we dedicate the fruits of our time together to the benefit and healing and transformation of all beings. Thank you. And enjoy your practice with the parachute. (laughs) 